Hello everyone and welcome back to Fonication, the podcast dedicated to making you feel insecure about your love life. I'm your host Jack and thank you so much for joining me on these weird adventures. If you're a returning listener, I appreciate you tolerating everything. If you're a new listener, welcome and I'm sorry ahead of time. Before we delve into another weird and wacky episode, I have to do the shameless plug, but also for charity, don't worry, it's not a sponsor. I'd like to say yet, but who's going to sponsor a podcast about animal sex? The actual plug is that for the rest of the month, any proceeds I make from Patreon go directly to Shark Saving Charities. Not a portion, all of it. I will also be uploading receipts so you can be 100% sure that I'm not lying to you. Last time I also matched the proceeds from my own bank account, so I intend to repeat that. But wait, there's more! You also get a free Fonication t-shirt for subscribing, and multiple free stickers. But most importantly, you get a warm fuzzy. And if you want to see the t-shirt, I have pictures on the Instagram. It's also soft and awesome. I love it. Okay. Plug over, thanks for not skipping. If you didn't skip. If you did skip, I get it. But now I'll move on to the actual episode content. And because statistically speaking, if you're listening, you're likely literate. And you probably figured out before opening the episode that I'm going to be telling you about lobsters. And you would be right about it. So if you like eating lobsters, this might fuck with that. Maybe. I don't know what kind of weird shit you might be into. So maybe it'll make you like lobsters more. I'm in no place to judge you for nearly anything. And realistically, if lobsters are delicious enough to spawn an entire two-year war between France and Brazil, I doubt I can put you off your appetite. So, what are lobsters, aside from essentially being giant underwater bugs? Lobster refers to a family named Nephropidae, but also sometimes Homeridae. I have been trying to figure out why it has two names. I figured out that Homeridae essentially means children of Homer, like the ancient Greek dude, Homer. So it's a human family of Homer's lineage. Um, but that doesn't really explain why, I guess. (laughs) So there's also a large number of lobster species in the world, 56 living species, and many of them have species names that start with a variant of Homeridae. But then many of them have a species name that start with a variant of Nephrope. Additionally, there's also a genus called Homaras that the American and European lobsters fall under. Those are the two main lobsters used for culinary purposes. And there's also a genus called Homerinus that the Cape lobster falls under. But there's also the genus Nephropedes, or Nephrops, or Nephropsis. So my answer is that I don't fucking know what the answer is. (laughs) Any lobster scientist listening, please hit a bitch up. This is actually driving me crazy. I spent six hours trying to find an answer to this one question of why there's two names for the same family, and I haven't been able to find it. I'm I'm ready to cry about it. I can't figure out the answer. (laughs) Like, if I had to make up an answer, I would guess that some lobster scientists are fighting about Latin, which sounds hilarious, but I haven't been able to find any discourse about it. (laughs) So if you have the direction to the Latin lobster fight, I want to be part of that. (laughs) But anyways, Nephropidae and Homeridae means lobsters, large marine clawed crustaceans. They're not directly related, but also not super distant from similar looking animals such as crabs and shrimp which are all crustaceans and therefore all belong to the subphylum Crustacea, along with other marine arthropods like barnacles and prawns and crayfish. Arthropod basically means an invertebrate with an exoskeleton. So add that to the fact that lobsters have too many legs, and you'd be hard-pressed to convince me that lobsters aren't underwater spiders. I mean, going up the evolutionary tree of Animalia, they both eventually belong to the same phylum. Oh, and... A fossil was discovered a few years ago showing an animal that was basically half spider, half lobster. It also had tusks. And there's apparently been lively debate about which family to place it under because of that. Thank God it's dead. Going back to living lobsters. 
I'm not gonna bother explaining what they look like because you probably know what a lobster looks like. Again, it looks like a bug. But you might not be 100% certain about its coloring. Lobsters are generally dark colored, like a bluish green or greenish brown, but then turn bright red after being cooked due to the astaxanthin in their bodies. Although one in every 50 to 100 million has split coloring, which means each side is a different color, and it's almost always due to hermaphroditism. There's also some other color variations that are near equally as rare, including albinism, cotton candy or pastel, which is another type of albinism, pure blue caused by a genetic defect, calico, orange, red, yellow, and lastly, Halloween, which is literally a split color of orange and black. I didn't know that there was a thing with lobsters before now, but Halloween is my favorite holiday, so I'll obviously upload a picture of the Halloween lobster. By the way, the New England Aquarium has an exhibit titled Lobster Rainbow that contains a slew of rare colored lobsters. Admittedly, it's not the most creative name, not even any like alliteration, like the colors of crustacea or crustacean complexions or homeridae hues. They could have also done a pop culture reference like Fifty Shades of Seafood, but they chose Lobster Rainbow. I'm sorry, I'll move on from that. Now that you know about their coloring, you possibly know that their blood is blue due to having hemocyanin rather than hemoglobin. You also might know that many lobster species have three pairs of fully functioning claws. If you don't, that's fine. I actually didn't until I started looking up information for this episode. Only one pair is gonna be the obscenely big claw. The other two pairs are baby claws. Another cool thing about them is that they don't chew with their mouths. Their teeth are in their stomach, so they chew with their stomach. They use something called a gastric mill. It's, it looks like molars. And just what are they chewing up? Most likely each other, considering how prone they are to cannibalism. Or themselves, because when they shed their exoskeleton, they generally eat it. What's also interesting is that spiny lobsters can rub their antenna together to produce fart noises. <laughs> and the noises can be heard up to three kilometers away. I imagine even the most severe case of human IBS can't let us accomplish that. Do we have an answer as to why? Not yet, but I hope we will soon. It's pretty weird, so naturally I think it's pretty cool. You may have also heard that lobsters are biologically immortal. While biological immortality is definitely a thing, unfortunately in the case of lobsters, it's just a myth. Lobsters do have a long lifespan, generally estimated to be up to 50 years, but sometimes over 100. Although it's very hard to precisely determine age of lobsters because when they shed their exoskeleton, they get rid of their digestive tract and gastric mill and shit like that. But that's nowhere near some other species, such as the ocean quahog clam, which can live to, at the very least, 507 years. Or the rough-eyed rockfish, who can live over 200. As well as tortoises and turtles, who are notorious for living super long. And that doesn't include the species that have true biological immortality, like some species of jellyfish or hydra. One reason for this false factoid spreading around is that lobsters don't really slow down or get weaker or less capable of making babies when they get older. It's even possible that older lobsters are actually more fertile than younger ones. However, the older lobster, the more likely they are to die during a shell molt. If you've ever seen a tarantula molt and leave its exoskeleton behind, same same, but for lobsters. Further proof they're just spiders. Actually, I think a better example, or like a more common example, probably would have been a cicada. <laughs> Anyways, they're more likely to die from molting when they're older because lobsters can grow for their entire lives. The largest lobster ever recorded was 44 pounds, and the larger the shell, the more energy is required. At some point, they'll be so big they'll literally die of exhaustion. It's also not unheard of for older lobsters to stop molting altogether, which means eventually the shells will get damaged and fall apart or even infected. 
The infection will then get into the lobster's body, forming scar tissue and basically gluing the lobster inside the current exoskeleton, making a molt literally impossible, as the lobster cannot meet the physical requirements to bust out of the shell. In super shitty cases, the infection will make the entire shell rot and then kill the lobster. Further assumed proof of their immortality comes from telomerase, which is an uncommon word, don't worry, I'll tell you what it is. It's an enzyme that repairs sections of DNA, and it's assumed to be what allows for their long lifespans. But again, long lifespans, not immortality. So let me break down what that means in explain like on five manner, simple English. So when cells divide to create new cells, they replicate DNA strands, and in most animals, the protective end caps on chromosomes, called telomeres, get shorter and shorter every time they get copied. Eventually, they get too short, and they enter a phase called senescence, which just means they're too short to be copied any further. So, no more cell division. It's a thing that essentially causes dying by old age. However, lobsters have that enzyme I mentioned, telomerase, which repairs and regenerates the telomeres that get shortened during cell division. So they don't truly die from old age, and that's where the merit in the immortality claim lies. Because if they could figure out how to not die from getting too big, they very probably would be truly biologically immortal. So the most common death for lobsters is predation, or becoming human food. By the way, commonly asked question about cooking lobsters is do they feel pain when you boil them or kill them in other manners commonly found in many kitchens? According to Stephanie Yu of the University of Guelph? Guelph? Jelf? I'm not sure, a university, the methods likely to cause the most pain and distress are separating the abdomen from the thorax, the removal of flesh, tissue, or limbs, placing them in water that slowly raises to a boil, placing them in already boiling water, placing them in fresh water, and unfocused microwaving of the body. The practice of boiling live lobsters has been banned in several countries. Another way lobsters have been dying this year specifically in February is the El Nino effect that band of warm water and weird currents that fucks with ocean ecosystems and global weather patterns. And apparently, it caused thousands upon thousands of lobsters to wash up on Laguna Beach. I'm sure that did not help with the tourism industry. If I ever had to witness a mass animal stranding like that, I would probably think it was an apocalyptic event. All rational thought would abandon my body, and I'd probably start looting ATMs or some shit. But that might just be a little better than witnessing a lobster mating ritual. All right, that was a trash segue. I, I am sorry. I promise I'm working on it. I'm just genuinely very, very bad at segues. Like, how else am I supposed to say that it's time to learn about lobster fucking without saying it's time to learn about lobster fucking? If this podcast becomes successful enough, I'm literally going to hire someone to write segues for me. But anyways, it's time to learn about lobster fucking. Lobsters are neither monogamous nor polygamous. Instead, they're serial monogamists. So if you believe Phoebe from Friends about old lobster couples holding claws, she was wrong. Sorry if that breaks your heart. A dominant male mates with an entire harem of females, but unlike most animals in that situation, he won't go back and forth. He will be super dedicated, super in love, super loyal to only one female lobster for about two weeks. Then he'll kick her out and date the next girl. And I do actually mean that he'll kick her out because of how the whole love affair goes. Lobsters only have sex when they live together. So when a female is ready to get that baby juice, she's got to seduce him enough to make him want the sex and be willing to take the super fast step of moving in together before sleeping together. One step below waiting until marriage. So how does the sultry charming crustacean beguile him with her feminine wiles? She goes to his house and pees on his doorstep. Then to make damn sure he doesn't miss the message, she'll waft the urine into his home, flooding his pad with the pheromone-laced fragrance of fertility. I actually know a human who did something similar. 
I was at a super weird party and some guy was upset with his girlfriend for going to the party. So he showed up. And when he found out that the door was locked, he peed on it. It was less than successful though, because we are not lobsters. And lobster males, when they smell that pee, it intrigues them like a perfume. They join her on the front porch and start feeling her up. I imagine they say shitty things like, I wanna know how you taste, because they have taste receptors on their feet. So when they feel her up, they're literally tasting her. Again, reminding everyone listening, we are not lobsters. So this courtship ritual can last several days with her continually dropping by to seduce him until eventually his hemocyanin blue balls are too much to handle and he asks her to move in. Considering this was her ulterior motive all along, she quickly agrees. So she moves into his den and pulls the whole, let me slip into something more comfortable by shedding her exoskeleton. The reason that she does that is because lobsters can physically only have intercourse when she's in this squishy state, which is why she actually does this whole courtship ritual to begin with. Since she's so squishy, she's extra vulnerable to predators. So she moves in so that the male can shelter and protect her. Exchange of services, I suppose. The infatuated couple live a whirlwind romance confined to the bedroom. Eventually, a week or two later, her new shell will grow and harden. She won't need his protection anymore, and sex will be rendered impossible. At which point, he'll realize the relationship was purely physical, kick her out, and repeat the whole vicious cycle with an ex-girl, who is, by the way, already in line, pissing on his front door. The ladies are all very cooperative with each other as they tend to stagger their molt time so they can each have a turn with his full, undivided attention. Zero jealousy there. And that wraps up lobster sex. No butter involved, I'm afraid. I hope that was enlightening. Don't forget to check out Fonication on the socials. It's on Instagram and Twitter and Facebook. Also, if you like this podcast, please leave a review on iTunes. It helps out so, so much. If you really like this podcast and want to support it, as well as animal-related charities, please consider subscribing to the Patreon. Don't forget to tune in next hump day for another horrifying episode. Also, episode 20 is coming up, so if you have some weird animal facts you'd like to include, please let me know. I get some awesome DMs from you guys filled with all sorts of weird shit that would probably be considered harassment under other circumstances, and I love it. Keep it coming, guys. I promise it makes me smile. And that's it. Bye!